It's uh, good to be back with you all here at Hilton Head. Uh, we're thankful for the relationship we've had through the years, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to just talk with you this morning from God's Word. I'm actually going to speak this morning from a single text uh, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that you'll find printed for you in your bulletin. I want to use this text, I talk from it not so much um, exegetically, that is, parse every word, but topically. To, to use it as kind of a runway to take off from and a runway to return and land upon again. Uh, and that in the course of taking off and flying around, what I want to do is to do a flyover of the life of the one who writes these words, Simon Peter. In part because these words are among the last recorded words we have from Peter. They come in a book that is written at the end of his life as he knows that his death is imminent, that he will be martyred for the Christ that he has followed. And as he comes to the end, he gives to us words that I think are a reflection of his story that has a lot of relevance for ours. But because through Peter's story, I think we learn something for our story of how we might do what he actually calls us to in this verse, which is this as I read for us. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. Um, earlier this summer, uh, or earlier this year in the summer, uh, I got a gift from my father that was a Rebel Mark I late 1960s. Most of you probably have no idea what that is, so I'll fill you in. It is a very old sailboat. A sailboat that my dad had gotten from a friend who had gotten from a neighbor who he lived next door to, and that my dad decided to give to me. Now, needless to say, a hand-me-down 1960s sailboat is not necessarily in mint condition, and so it was that my son Elliot and I set about a yet-to-be-completed project of restoration, in which we started to take off the parts that were rusting and decaying in order for them to be stripped, that we pulled the rigging out of the mass in order to re-rig the boat, in which we started to you know, paint the parts that needed to be painted. We started to take this thing that was broken down and that was dilapidated and that was in need of repair and to invest in a project of restoration. I tell you that story because when we come to talk about the life of Simon Peter, we come to talk about one who, very much like us, is broken down, decaying, broken in all sorts of places, and in desperate need of being restored. And what we also come to see is that the restoration of broken people is precisely the type of work that Jesus specializes in. As we talk about how that happens this morning, I don't have so much you know, an outline to give you as I do a story to tell you. The story of God's little man, Simon Peter. So I invite you to sit back and listen to the story. What, what do we know about Peter from the New Testament? Well, we know this, that he was an uneducated Jewish fisherman. He owned a boat probably with his brother Andrew, which means he was very likely kind of middle class, uh, that spent his days working on the seas of Galilee, that he was a man who, you know, usually when he's depicted in art is, is seen as this large hulking sort of man. If we were making a movie, you know, we would cast somebody like Liam Neeson in the role, like big and lumbering. It's very likely that Peter was this way, that his body was rippled with strength from years of pulling nets into a boat. His skin probably tanned, olived, and wrinkled by the sun and by the weather, years of exposure. We, we know that when Peter 
comes to meet Jesus, it's not through a direct contact, but it actually comes through his brother Andrew. Andrew was out for a walk one day, and he encountered Jesus, and Jesus looked at Andrew, and he asked him a rather odd question. He said this, what are you seeking? What are you after? What, what do you want in life? It's a pretty important question to answer, isn't it? What do you want? Andrew suspects that what he wants what he's after, that what he's seeking, is found in the one who is now standing before him, God himself. And so with great speed, Andrew runs and he finds his brother, Peter, and he says to him, you have to come. I have found the Messiah, which means I have found the one that we have been looking for who will at last make the world the way it is supposed to be. And Peter, with great haste, comes and he meets Jesus. Only something interesting happens when Peter comes to meet Jesus. As many of you will know, his name is not Peter then, it is Simon. Jesus looks at him and he gives to him a new name. He he looks at him and he says, look, you are Simon Barjona, son of John. You are Simon Johnson. This is who you are, but who you will be is Peter which in the Greek means the rock. You are Simon Johnson, but you will become Rocky. It's a rather odd thing to do, isn't it? If I first met you and you told me your name was John, and I'm like, great to meet you, John, but you will be called Oak Tree. Like, you would probably look at me with strange sorts of glares. But the Apostle John tells us that Jesus was one who knew what was in a man. That is that Jesus, I think in this moment, is looking at Peter, and what he is saying is this, I know you. I know your potential. I know your potential for great wickedness and great evil, for great destruction, apart from me. But I also know your potential for great good and great significance and great glory as a part of my kingdom. I I know you. This is who you are. But this is who you will be. And in the gospel, Jesus comes and he looks at us with the very same gaze. And I think he says to us, look, I know you. I know who you are. But I know who you will be in me. There is a lot of work to do. Let's get to it. You need to recognize something as we talk about this, though, is that Jesus does not choose Peter because of his potential. Rather, it is the opposite, is that Peter has potential because of Jesus' choice. Peter has potential because of Jesus' choice. And so the same is true for you and I, is that Jesus does not call us because of our potential, but rather we have potential if Jesus has called us. And then he starts to get to work. With Peter, it looked like this, that a little later, he was with a large crowd, and Jesus was teaching by the edge of a lake, a common setting. Jesus is teaching the crowd, and in order for the crowd to be able to hear him a little better, he asked Peter to push out from shore on a boat that was very likely the boat that Peter owned. And so Jesus is teaching the crowd from the boat, and when he has finished teaching, he says to Peter, Peter, Will you go out a little further because I think now would be a good time for us to do some fishing. Peter begins to do what will become a reoccurring pattern for him. He tries to correct Jesus. He says, Jesus, Jesus, I've been a fisherman all my life. And actually last night I was out fishing and we caught nothing. And now you want us to push out the boat at what is the worst time of day for us to catch fish. And let just share, spare us the waste of time. It's not a good time. We're not going to catch anything. But if you're the Lord... I'll do what you ask. 
And so Peter begins to push the boat out, even though he says we won't catch anything. And then an interesting thing happens is that when they throw the nets over like Jesus asked, they start to fill with so many fish that the nets themselves begin to break. And the Gospels tell us that they called other boats over because there were so many fish they wouldn't just fit in one boat. And the boats themselves now start to sink as they are filled up with so many fish. And and at the sight of this astounding provision where Peter had been utterly convinced of nothing but scarcity, Peter falls down at the knees of Jesus. And this is what he says. Go away from me. I am a sinful man. You see, Peter is starting to confront what are the twin realities that are always at the heart of growing as a disciple. The abject sinfulness of himself and the awe-inspiring majesty of of Christ. He sees the reality of his own sin and the overwhelming otherness of the one who is in the boat with him. And his response is to say, I am unfit to be in your presence. I'm not clean. Go away. It's a little bit like a a moment in my childhood. I I may have shared this story with you all before. It will reveal my redneck origins. Uh, When I was in middle school, my father somehow managed to hook us up with a rat shooting at a pig farm. Um, In which you go late at night and you turn on the lights and there are thousands of rats that run around these pig stalls and my dad would have a twenty-two pistol and start shooting them and I wasn't allowed to carry a gun. I got to bring a spear. Um, And so as a 12-year-old boy running through pigsties chasing rats with a spear, needless to say, you get a little dirty. And what you get on you is not normal, ordinary dirt, but it's the kind of dirt that you can smell two counties over. Like, the stench is horrible. So that whenever we would come home and my brother and I would stand outside of the door to our house, my mom would greet us and she would say, you are not coming into my house like that. You must take off all your clothes and get the garden hose and spray one another off before you can come in and take a shower. Right? Her response was to say, you're too filthy. You can't come in because you're not clean. And what Peter is confronting is that very reality. Is, Lord, go away from me. I can't come in. I am not clean. And something interesting happens. Jesus, who is not surprised at all by Peter's confession, refuses to listen to his words. And doesn't run away. But rather moves toward him. And he says this, Peter, Peter, don't be afraid. You have caught fish. I'm going to teach you how to catch men. You're seeing your sinfulness and guess what? I'm going to use you in my mission. I'm going to use you in my mission. Even as Peter confronts his sinfulness, Jesus is graciously pointing him towards his potential. And it is here that Jesus gives the summons, the command. It's not just an invitation, it's a command. And he says, come and follow me. Lay down your nets, leave them behind, come and follow me, which Peter does. As he's following Jesus, it was again by the side of a lake that Jesus is teaching a crowd. This time, he's not pushed out in a boat, but he's very likely on a hill. And the crowd, after a long day of teaching, begins to get hungry. And Peter calls the disciples to do an inventory of their resources. They have none. They have essentially a fish sandwich, two loaves of bread and fish. And Jesus tells to them, take those and feed the people. 5,000 people are fed from this abundance of God's provision in such a way that there are 12 basketfuls left over. The disciples have again seen Jesus dramatically provide for people. And then he comes to them and he, he tells them, 
I've had a long day. I want you guys to get in the boat and go ahead and sail ahead of me. I'm going to spend some time praying. It was night by this point, and the disciples get in the boat, and they begin to set sail. And It was a bit of rough weather. It wasn't overwhelmingly frightening to them. They were used to this sort of thing. What was frightening is that after they had sailed three and a half miles, they look in the distance, and they see somebody walking on top of the water. Their response is to be filled with fear for the same reason you would be, because that's not normal. right? People don't walk on water. And, and actually, the Gospels tell us that when they look out, one of the apostles looks and he says, it is a ghost. <laughs> They're afraid that it is a ghost walking on the water, when all of a sudden they hear what is a familiar voice say this, take courage, it is I. And Peter, in a moment of beautiful faith, calls out and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me and I'll come. And Jesus says, come, and Peter steps out on the boat, and now he's the one walking on water in the midst of a storm towards Jesus. What faith? Here's what you need to recognize. That sort of faith in the Bible, walking on water, only happens in the middle of storms. It's only in the middle of stormy places that that sort of dramatic faith happens. And so I don't know what stormy things are going on in your life presently, but I do know that perhaps it's because God wants to work in you a faith that might not appear otherwise. Peter steps out on the water and he starts to walk towards Jesus, but then he feels the wind against his face. Or maybe it's the sound of the waves. Whatever it is, is his heart begins to fill with fear and he starts to sink. And he shouts out in what is a beautiful cry, Lord, save me! And Jesus reaches his hand and Peter stops to sink. Even in sinking, faithless Peter, I think, is beginning to get a real clarity about where help comes from. And as Jesus grabs Peter's hand, he looks at him and he asks, or he says to him this, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? I'm a land animal, Jesus, like, and I'm walking on water. We don't know what Peter's response was. What we do know is this, is that when he got his eyes off of Jesus and put them on his circumstances, his heart was filled with fear, and he started to sink. That's how it works, doesn't it? Is that when your eyes are consumed with your circumstances and are distracted from Jesus, our hearts fill with faith, and very often the response is sinking. You see, faithlessness is a chronic issue for the disciples. But even in the presence of their abiding faithlessness, they're growing. Because when Jesus climbs back onto the boat and he rebukes Peter, Matthew tells us that again the disciples fall down, but this time the response is not to say go away. Matthew says they begin to worship. They begin to worship the one who is on the boat with them. They're starting to get it. It was at some point after the rescue of sinking Peter on the water that Jesus is with the disciples and he begins to conduct what is a sort of a, an opinion poll, you know, a, a survey of sort in which he asks them, uh, who is it that people are saying that I am? Their answer is some of them say you're a prophet, some even say that you're Elijah, come back from the dead. That's all well and good boys. Let's personalize it a bit. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter, like he often does, speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter with joy. And this is what he says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What do you think Peter felt like when he heard those words? One who so often speaks and gets it wrong, speaks and gets it right. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you, you didn't figure this out, but received divine revelation. I think his heart would have glowed. And Jesus does something interesting at this point, is he starts to change tenses on him. Up to this point in the Gospels, he always looks and he says, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. But did you hear what he said there? You are Peter. You see, I think something fundamental about discipleship is represented in that tense change, is that when you see Jesus for who he is and embrace him, something fundamentally changes about who you are. You were Simon, but now you are Peter. You are the rock. He receives divine revelation about who Jesus is, and if you have seen Jesus for who he is, then something has changed about who you are. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king, that you are declared to be in this moment what you are also becoming, righteous and holy. You already are what you are also becoming. So Peter receives this divine revelation. There is this profound change. He gets it right. His heart is glowing. And then Jesus says, you can't tell anybody what you just confessed about who I am. But wait a second, Jesus. Why can't I tell anybody? You can't tell anybody because my work is not yet done. I still must suffer. I still must go to the cross. And I still must die and be raised again on the third day. Oh, oh Jesus. Come over here. It's, it's a good thing you have me. It's a good thing you have me because I, this stuff about suffering and death just doesn't really make much sense at all. Right? You are the Messiah. You're to come to defeat the Romans. You're to come in victory, not in defeat. I got that one right just a second ago, Jesus. It's a good thing that you have me. Oh, Peter. Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You see, there is a warning for us here. It is possible. It is possible to think that you are allied with the purposes of God, all the while to be doing the work of his enemy. Peter thinks he knows what is best, and the reality is that he is allied here in this moment, the one who is bold yet again when he should be timid with the very work of Satan. He speaks when he should be silent so very often, and here he is rebuked not by Jesus, but by the Father. The Father who comes to him and says, or or, or, he will be rebuked by the Father. Uh, Here, Jesus rebukes him. I think for what uh, Stuart Briscoe, a a pastor whose telling of this story of Peter has shaped most of my own, says that Peter was guilty in this situation of following the Messiah of imagination rather than the Messiah of revelation. Here are a couple tests for whether or not we do this. Is if Jesus never disagrees with you and your opinions about the world and what you should do, you're probably following the Messiah of imagination and not the Messiah of revelation. If you don't do some things in life simply because Jesus tells you to, like if there's no other motivation than that, you're probably following the Messiah of imagination rather than the Messiah of revelation. Peter is rebuked, and it's interesting that Jesus doesn't rush right in and restore him. Luke tells us that it was not until six days later that Jesus comes to Peter and to actually James and John, and he says, boys, let's take a hike. 
let's go on a walk. And they set out and they walk up a mountaintop, Mount, what will be known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and Jesus begins to pray and the disciples do what they often do, which is to fall asleep. Only they're awakened from sleeping to find that Jesus is being changed before them. He's metamorphosing. He is being transfigured. His appearance is changing in such a way that his glory begins to break out from his humanity. And so that one of the gospel writers describes it this way, is that his clothes are as bright as a flash of lightning. And in this appearance, this manifestation of his glory, he is talking to Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, and they're talking about the exodus, is what the Greek says, that Jesus will accomplish. The rescue of a people in slavery and the delivering of them towards a promised land. What a gift that Peter gets. To faithless, to failing, to rebuked as an ally of Satan, Peter. The glory of Christ is revealed. Moses and Elijah saw the glory of God revealed on a mountain, but it was only his backside as he passed by. They saw the cloud of his glory move by. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud of God's glory descends. Peter is inside the cloud, and he sees the very face of God changed. And he lives. What a moment of grace to this failing and this faltering man. And what does Peter do? This is great. Let's build three tents and let's stay here. This time it's not Jesus, but it's the Father that rebukes Peter. The voice comes from the cloud and says, This is my one and only Son in whom I am well. Please listen to him. Implication, there's no need for three tents. Because one of these three is not like the other, right? As Sesame Tree once taught us. Is there is only the need to listen to one voice. Peter gets it wrong yet again. As they come down off of this mountain, Jesus begins his crazy talk again about how he must suffer and how he must die. And Peter begins his correcting talk yet again. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, there's no need for this suffering to be part of of. of, of of your plan of redemption. There's no need for this. And as Jesus talks about how he must suffer and die, something interesting happens among the disciples. They begin a debate about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You must suffer and die. Which one of us will be the greatest? It's actually the same debate that they begin having at the Last Supper. When on the night before Jesus will head to the cross, he has gathered all of his disciples in a room to eat with them the Passover meal, and he begins to tell them, I'm going to be betrayed... By one of you. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you, and eventually, actually, you're all going to leave me. And Peter again corrects Jesus. Jesus, that's not true. You don't know me. You don't know me. I mean, it may be the case that some people will leave you, but I will not leave you. I I will I will suffer for you. I will even die for you. I mean, James, John, maybe Thaddeus, very likely he might leave you. We know him, but not me, Jesus. If they all leave you, surely will not I. Oh, Simon. Simon. It's interesting that Jesus calls him Simon here. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for your prayers, but really they're not necessary. I will not leave you. Peter, before the rooster crows three times, Before the rooster crows today, you will betray me three times. Don't worry, Jesus. It's not going to happen. 
the dinner comes to an end and Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives where he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm so sad. I think I'm going to die. Will you pray with me? Three times Jesus asks the disciples to pray with him. Three times he comes and he finds them sleeping. After the third time of their waking, they look in the distance and what they see are the temple guards coming with the torch to arrest Jesus. As they appear before Jesus to arrest him, Peter in eagerness whips out a sword and he cuts off the ear of a temple guard named Malchus. Now do you think for a second that Peter's a, I'll just cut your ear off sort of guy? He's trying to cut, you know, Malchus and well, Mal on one side and Cuss on the other, right? Right down the middle. But he misses. And as he misses, Jesus looks at him and he says, put your sword away. This had to be confusing for Peter because Jesus had told him earlier, get a sword. And then he, in what may have been a shameful moment, picks up the ear of the guard, Malchus, and he heals him. As he tells Peter, don't you know that I could call down a legion of angels from my father to deliver me? The guards arrest him, and they begin to lead him off to the house of the high priest. The disciples all scattered at the arrest of Jesus, and the text tell us that Peter followed along at a distance until Christ is brought into the courtyard, and he begins to be questioned by the high priest about his teaching. What did, what did you teach? And Jesus says, why are you asking me? Ask one of the disciples who learned from me. As Jesus is saying this very thing, Peter has made his way into the courtyard and he is warming himself at the enemy's fire. When a little servant girl comes to him and she says, aren't you one of his disciples? Woman, I I don't know him. A little later the question comes again, you are one of them, you talk funny. I, 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 I do not know him, I promise I wasn't. But your accent betrays you. May God put me to death if I was one of them. The scriptures say it was with oaths and curses that he denied him. The one who has been so bold when he should be timid is timid at precisely the place he should have been bold. Everybody fumbles, right? This is the Super Bowl, and it's the goal line, and Peter's dropped the ball, and a rooster crows once, and a rooster crows twice, and Peter remembers Jesus' prediction and his heart is torn asunder. Jesus had predicted Peter's failure, but you need to recognize that Peter's failure was also predictable. He was arrogantly self-sufficient. Though all others would leave you, surely will not I. You can count on me. Those who are arrogantly self-sufficient in their discipleship are ripe for failure. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Those who follow Jesus at a distance and sort of believe and sort of don't, who neglect the means of grace, who kind of take a casual approach to the pursuit of him, are ripe for failure. Peter warmed himself at the enemy's fire. Those who warn themselves at the enemy's fire, who kind of play around with temptation, who think it's not that big of a deal, it's only once, are ripe for failure. Peter was faithless, And he was prayerless, sleeping when he should be praying. Those who are faithless and and prayerless are ripe for failure. Peter's failure was predicted, but it was also predictable. So that when the rooster crows, he denies him. 
What's interesting is that it takes two crows of the rooster for Jesus or for Peter to re- to remember Jesus' words. Why do you think it's not until after the second crow of the rooster that Peter remembers? Luke's gospel helps us with this question when he tells us this that after the rooster crowed the second time the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him that he would deny him. You see At the moment of his greatest failure, Jesus is looking right at Peter. What do you think his face looked like? Disappointment? Shame? Anger? Condescension? I told you. I told you this was going to happen. I don't think that's what his face looked like at all. I think the lines that creased the face of the Lord Jesus were those... Of compassion. If you look in Luke's gospel at almost every place that the word look or the word saw is associated with Jesus or a Christ type figure, what you find is that it's almost always preceded by a description of Christ's heart being moved with compassion. When Jesus sees the woman, the widow of Nain, who is crying at the head of a funeral session of her son, and all of the disciples don't notice her, Luke tells us that Jesus saw her, and his heart was stirred with compassion. If you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, in which the Good Samaritan is intended to be a figure of Christ, where the priest and the Levite pass right by the man in the ditch, the Samaritan sees, and his heart was moved with compassion. I think what broke Peter's heart was that at the moment of his greatest failure, Christ looked at him with forgiving love. Which is exactly, if you belong to him, the way he looks at you in the moment of your biggest failure. With forgiving love. Peter's heart is broken at the reality of his failure, and it is shortly after this look that Christ heads to the cross. Not unwillingly, but willingly. Not begrudgingly, but desiring. That Jesus in the Gospels looks at us in the moment of our greatest failure and he heads to the cross, not in sullen disappointment, but in suffering love. That he goes for his face to be covered in shame. That we, whose faces should be all ashamed, might receive the gaze of his forgiving love. And the good news is that the story doesn't stop for Peter at the cross. Jesus is laid in the tomb and Peter thinks the story is over and his heart is broken in sorrow when three days later the tomb is found empty by Mary who is met at the tomb by an angel and what does she tell Mary? Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is not here. Peter singled out to be one of the first to hear the news of Jesus' restoration. And it would be a bit later that Peter and some of the other disciples were again by the lake. And they have been fishing all night, and they have caught absolutely nothing, and they hear a very strange but familiar voice from the seashore. It says, throw out your nets on the other side. And so they throw their nets to the other side of the boat at what is a bad time to be fishing. And the nets are filled with 153 fish, is what John tells us. So filled that they cannot put them in the boat and their minds begin to flood with memories. And John says, it is the Lord. At which time Peter strips off his clothes and he jumps into the water and he runs to the shore. And where he finds is that Jesus has fixed fish breakfast by the side of the water. And he invites him to eat. 
And at some point, after the breakfast, very likely in a moment where they are to themselves, Jesus looks at him and he says, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not more than the fish, right? (laughs) You who have compared yourself in expressions of greatness for so much of your life, do you love me more than these other disciples? Peter's answer, yes, yes, Lord. Without comparing, he simply says, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. John tells us that Peter was troubled that he had been asked three times. Why does Jesus ask this question three times? I mean, I ask this question a lot at my house, like, do you love me? Right? Sometimes it can you know, be fishing out of my insecurities, like, do you love me? Sometimes it can be manipulative, like, do you love me? You want to change Ezra's diaper? Right? Sometimes, um, yeah, it can be insecurity or manipulation. It's safe to say that that is not Jesus' motive here. Here's what Jesus' motive, Jesus motive is. Restoration. Three times, you fell asleep when you should be praying. Three times, you denied me when you should have been bold. Three times, I will restore you. Three times, I will ask you to affirm for me your love. But not only will I restore you with these words, guess what? I will commission you for my mission. (laughs) Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs feed my sheep. You see, the good news for Peter and the good news for you and I in the gospel is that your failure is not final. It is not final. It's not the end of the story. Jesus comes to Peter and he says, I'm not done with you. I want you to participate in my mission. And it would be 50 days after the moment of his great failure, after the assurance of his forgiveness, that Peter would stand up in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and before expert in the Jewish law, he would preach up a storm from the minor prophets in the Psalms. And he would say to them, he who had denied Jesus, would say to those who, have just been, who had been shouting for the crucifixion, he says to them this, you, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him into the cross. But God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. The one who time and time again has been cut to the heart by his own failure would say to the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 people were added to the number that day. And it doesn't stop at Pentecost. It goes through the whole book of Acts where Peter faces arrest and he faces persecution and imprisonment and the threat of death. And through it all, he refuses to keep quiet. And if legend has it true, eventually Peter himself would be crucified upside down because he felt unwilling to be martyred in the same way as his Lord. Where does change like that come from? How does arrogant, self-sufficient, tactless Simon become Peter? It comes from the relentless faithfulness of God. That Peter met again and again and again and again in the place of his sin and of his weakness and of his failure. When he is only Simon, Jesus says, you will be the rock. When the rock sinks in doubt, Jesus lifts him in forgiving faith. When he is so full of self that all he can see is sin, Jesus shows him his glory on the top of a mountain. When Peter, fresh off the revelation of God, rebukes Jesus, he is taken on a hike. When the rock is preoccupied with his own greatness, he is allowed to fail in order that he might see his need. 
And when he confronts his moments of greatest failure, what he finds is the forgiving gaze of Christ. And when his sin has betrayed Jesus to the cross, the father says, let him be Peter, that denier. And in the tomb, the father raises Christ from the dead. And as Peter waits in a room after the ascension of Christ, twiddling his thumbs, what do I do? The Holy Spirit is sent. The relentless faithfulness of God leads to change. But you have to recognize the change that it leads to in Peter is this. The repentant following after Christ. Peter got out of the boat. He left behind his nets. He hiked up the mountain. He ran to an empty tomb. He dove into the water and he fed the sheep. The relentless faithfulness of God always used to the repentant following of his disciples. And here's where I want us to close by you thinking about your story. Because some of you have dropped the ball. And you're confronting head-on the reality of your failure. It may be an indifferent and lukewarm heart that you can't remember the last time you cracked open a Bible. That's small potatoes for many of us, right? What you remember very well is what you did this week. You, You remember maybe the places where you should have been bold and you kept your mouth shut. Or the places where you should have kept your mouth shut... And you were bold with your children or with your spouse. Where maybe you haven't had an outright denial, but you know, your gossip or your words of slander or your temper or your acting out. Some way, shape, or form has been an expression of the denial of your heart. And Jesus comes to you not very far from the water. And through his words and on many Sundays at a table with bread and wine, fixes a meal. And he says, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Yes, I love you, but I struggle so much. Do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord, I love you, but, but my, my faith is so weak. Do, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then join me in my mission. Your failure's not final. My work is not finished. Join me. Join me in my mission. Brothers and sisters, God comes to you and he calls you to make every effort to be diligent in your growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that you take people who are weak and broken and sinful and in need of major restoration. And that your work is to change us. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to pursue you, to follow after you in repentance and faith? Would you meet us in the place of our own failure? And would you use us in your mission? We pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen. Let's stand and